0: Beyond the the headlines, this is World Insight.
1: Hello and welcome to World Insight with me Tian Wei. 2023 marks the 20th anniversary of a comprehensive strategic partnership between China and the European Union. Official data shows China Railway Express has operated a total of 81,000 trains to Europe, reaching about 217 cities in 25 of the continent's countries. Still, there is much potential for cooperation between China and Europe. That's especially true with energy amid efforts toward a green and digital transition. So to shore up trade and people to people relations, recently French Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs Catherine Colonna has paid a visit to China following the Xi Biden meeting in San Francisco. Where are the China-EU relations heading for? And what does Europe want to see with China-U.S. relationship? Meanwhile, what China and European countries can do in a multilateral platform, such as the WTO? For deeper insights, I talked to Arancha Gonzalez, former Spanish Minister of Foreign Affairs. Let's take a listen. Arancha, what a pleasure to see you here. Thank you very much for the hospitality. Thank you. Having seen you for a long time, but now a lot of people are talking about climate change and not just talking about but try to integrate that element into the global governance system, including trade and economics governing system. But how is that likely to be studied? Tell me more about how the EU, from your perspective, has been doing it. now we see some controversies in terms of taxes. For example, considering imports uh, based on what they call as the carbon factor, meanwhile we also see the EU, for example, doing investigations against the so-called subsidies Mm -hmm. uh, that China put into developing new energy, uh, electricity, electric cars, for example, and the uh, um, uh, batteries. So how do you
2: see these practices, the nature of these? For sure we need to do more to reduce emissions. We're not doing enough and we are not doing it fast enough. As a result of that, the temperature continues in the... in our world continues to increase. We cannot afford this. We already see the impact that it's having on our countries, on Sometimes it's too much rain, sometimes it's not enough water, sometimes it's too dry, sometimes these extreme weather events are also the result of the fact that the earth is suffering. So we need to decarbonize faster. But we need to do this in a manner that doesn't only help one country or two countries with huge impact on others. Mm -hmm. We have to build the spaces where we will discuss the measures that countries take to reduce emissions, preventing that these measures have incredible negative impacts on others this is where i think the places like the world trade organization have a role to play then this is different from the fairness of international trade i think both the eu and china are committed to keeping their markets open and they this is because a big part of growth in europe and in china comes from open markets but when one looks at the trade figures between china and the eu i think it's fair to say that chinese exports to europe are growing in a big way european exports to china are diminishing in a big way so i think rather than you know we have two choices we hit each other on the head or we sit down and we look at what kind of barriers we have that are preventing trade from showing its fullest potential my preferred avenue would be the second one but you know, I also understand that people get nervous if they see a deterioration of their economic prospects and they, th- they think, I'm not judging, they think that there is unfairness. So what about, once again, that
1: climate uh, issue uh, in terms of a cross-border taxation? Uh, yeah. that? Uh, Uh, Many say whether EU is going to set an example for others and whether there's going to be a downward spiral, things getting worse before any signs of getting better, more uh, unilateralism as a result.
2: What about your thoughts? So I think uh, so what the EU has done basically is massively reduce emissions of CO2 in Europe. But now there is a concern that this reduction could be in a way, impaired by imports of CO2 when trading with other nations. Right. The best thing would be that we all adopt a carbon price, but we are not there or any other plan that we can all share together. That's right. But because we are not there, we have to. So what's the second best? And so the EU has taken a measure to basically prevent imports of CO2 with trade. And uh, I understand that other countries are also thinking of doing the same. Now, if every country does it its own way, in my view, it's less efficient, than if we were to bring this conversation to the World Trade Organization and maybe look at how to compare the efforts that every country is doing to reduce emissions and how to reduce those emissions in a manner that is more cooperative rather than conflictual. But for sure we need to do more because we are not reducing emissions as fast as we need to protect next generations. This is a big issue for the young people. I know this because in our university in Sciences Po in Paris, this is a huge issue for our students. They think it's unfair to future generations that we are polluting too much today, that we are not doing enough today because the earth they will inherit, it's an earth that would be to pollute it. Mm, And how to avoid the scenario
1: that people are or policymakers are doing it uh, with their unilateral approach and also protectionism approach rather than collective approach. That's really uh, another
2: concern related to this. Correct, and then therefore, let's sit down around the table. Let's move from words to action Uh, and let's be serious about working together to f- reduce CO2 emissions faster because we are not moving fast enough. Mm. The other thing
1: is related to uh, policies, for example, regarding batteries yes. or electricity cars. Uh, we have seen the recent investigation uh, against the so-called uh, subsidies uh, that China has put into into this regard of by the EU. How do you see this will shape the discussions
2: for the future especially about the link between environment and trade so i think we need to decarbonize also our vehicles we also need to move to vehicles that reduce co2 emissions and electric vehicles are a big part of the answer and for sure china has been investing a lot in this electric vehicle in the past and has been putting a lot of research and innovation in this space and this is good But what I know is that when I look at the trade figures, there is a big imbalance between China and the EU, and it didn't used to be the case before. And the imbalance is essentially not on the Chinese side, in the sense that Chinese exports continue to grow. Where there is a difficulty is on European access to the Chinese market. This is where I think it would be very important for Europe and China to sit down and take this seriously. Because they too the two need markets to remain open. But the two will confront a situation where the politics of trade will oblige them to take more drastic measures to close their markets. And this would not be good. So more dialogue and more action is in my view the way to do it. And preserve, in the meantime, markets open because this will be a guarantee also that we let our economies also show their full potential.
1: We have heard a lot of terminologies like uh, decoupling. Now we also see new terminologies replacing decoupling, so-called de-risking. There are different arguments as to whether this is just makeup of the same concept. What is your take? And what do you think is the real essence, no matter what, they, what we call them? That needs to be
2: worked on right now, given the realities. So let's be honest. Everyone is taking measures to, so to speak, the risk. Europe is, the US is. What is the risking is being more attentive to the security part of the relationship, including on the economic and trade space, caring more about ensuring the security of the exchanges. So it's important. It's a representative of the turbulent, more competitive world we are living in, but. We have to be careful that the pendulum doesn't move completely to the security space. We have to find a new balance between the economy and security. And we have to be careful in finding this balance that we don't go too much on the security, which is pretty much a zero-sum game. But we also don't, are not naive to think that it can only be about efficiency and openness. So let's find this new balance. Let's do this with guardrails. Let's do this together as opposed to just simply hitting each other on the head with a hammer because that inevitably uh, will lead uh, to suboptimal solutions, will lead to more pain. We lead to more inflation at a time when we are all trying to do exactly the opposite, which is trying to bring confidence into our economies so that in this period of turbulence, the economy can continue to generate uh, the jobs and the innovation and the competitiveness that our citizens, our workers require. Right.
1: Your transition from the political career to the academic career has been applauded by many of your friends. Now I want to know when you were approaching your students who are the leaders of the next generation, what would you advise them in terms of how the governance system can be built? With what kind of skills can they be built? And what they need to learn in order to be the builder of that?
2: Yeah, so it's, uh, I'm very humbled now to be the Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs in Sciences Po, working with 1,500 uh, young students from all across the world, more than 130 nationalities represented. Wow. So it's a, like a, rep- a mini-representation of the world. It's very humbling because I see a young generation that is concerned, is concerned about the direction in which the world is moving because this is the world they will inherit. But at the same time, they want to be architects of this world. They want to have a say. They just don't want to see what happens. They want to have an influence in shaping. So I think our responsibility as a university is give them the knowledge, give them the skills, and give them uh, the experience to be the architects of an international order, that has to face, that faces enormous challenges, but that they will not shy away from the challenges. They will understand that by keeping a spaces for dialogue and cooperation, they can get better results uh, than if they just simply resort to very, you know, to isolate, isolating responsive isolation, or to national responses. That's, in essence, I think this is um, what, uh, what we're trying to, um, to work with them so that they can be these architects uh, for bringing more security, more stability, sustainability, prosperity to this turbulent world. Thank you so much, Arancha. as always. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the ABCs of
1: artificial intelligence from one of China's top AI scientists and his college mentor, a brilliant American mathematician. A deep philosophical appreciation of AI. Next.
0: Beyond the he- Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight.
1: Welcome back. This is World Insight with me, Tian Wei. The latest drama related to OpenAI's top management attracted much media attention, while the European Union's Artificial Intelligence Act, which is the world's first draft law on AI, is in the final stage of legislation. Both the competition and cooperation on the development and governance of AI are at the backdrop of all these latest developments. I asked questions related to these to people in the know earlier this year. Song Chunju, the director of the Beijing Institute for General Artificial Intelligence at Peking University, and David Manford, Zhu's mentor, an American mathematician best known for his work on algebraic geometry, they were trying to answer some of these most vital questions of our time. Many of them not even limited to science. And voila. You have one of your students, but certainly one of your pride, proud students, also sitting with you right now, Professor Zhu. The other day, Professor Menford was uh, in the institute that you are working in, and you brought all your uh, postdoctoral students, uh, asked them to brief that's Professor Menford. You the- categorize them into different fields. The- so, I uh,
0: so mean, look- the test g- d- d- g- uh- is not is not given rules about what's true and what's false. It hallucinates things. It, it's what it's given is the information, which is implicit in the billions of sentences which it's been trained with. Right.
1: Tell us exactly what you're doing.
0: So
3: I think uh, we are trying to create uh, the first, uh, hopefully, the, uh, the general uh, AI. You know, AGI agents. So agents has to first assemble so many. Uh, capabilities, including uh, vision, how to see the world, and then language, can talk, dialogue, and the cognition. Cognition is way beyond the, the language and the vision because they have internal workings, into, including the serial mind, the reasoning, social, physical, common sense, functionality, affordance, we're talking about. Those are not visible. So I call it the dark matter of intelligence. Basically, it's not a visible part. The visible mm-hmm. part is the language right. and the uh, vision uh, images. Then you have robotics, the action, and then machine learning, and then you have multi-agent system, you have uh, simulation. So all those parts put together to build a single agent, we'll call it. And uh, the the key point is, uh, do you have a unified representation? Mm-hmm. So that these pieces can talk to each other. Right, and uh, aligned with a certain uh, universal representation or universal language, in that sense, uh, it's AI language. And that language also have to align with humans so they can interact with, with humans and to gain the trust of people. Uh, otherwise, people don't use them. So that is... We're
1: talking about a long part. march here. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. Well, that's one part. I think the, the whole world is racing tools that uh, holy grail, right, mm. this, uh, of uh, AGI. Uh, I think the biggest part that's missing in today's paradigm is the agent does not know what it, is it wants to do. When you have an animal or a, a human, you know, come to this world, it's all coded. We, you have you have so many things to do to survive, to grow, and uh, to you know, this is an infinity number of tasks generated autonomously. You know, to come to your brain, you do things. You know, instead of people ask you do and then you do, and then that's mechanic, right? Today's uh, computer or even AI is still largely mechanic. It's like, a, like GPT, you ask them the question, they can follow, right? You know, you, you give a string of, uh, of words and they give you another string of words, You're just following, it's, it's still one task. They treat it as one task. But humans can do infinity number of tasks and they do it autonomously. Like for example, you walk into the room, immediately you know what you want to do, right? Based on your needs, you have a system that drives you. I think uh, missing that part, it's the major reason why those, all those agents, you know, they cannot align with people because they don't know what to do. So yeah. then they, if you put so many tasks, thousands or millions of tasks, so then they know how to develop a language to represent all those tasks. So they, they will automatically align with you, with the people, uh, the last function, I would say. You know, usually they give you only one loss function to optimize the errors or you know, right. to, to back propagate to train the whole system. Yeah. Uh, to fit either likelihood model or right. a, a prediction error. So, but that is so preliminary. But humans, we have so many errors and uh, we try to fix. And uh, so many dimensions we, we got. So I call this as a value system. That means the machine misses, misses a heart. The heart, including two aspects. One is it's what a, a philosopher in ch- in China called this. Uh, the, the, the Chinese word of heart has many, multiple meanings, right? <laughs> when uh-huh. you say a heart, uh-huh. usually you, the guy does has a brain, does not have a heart. A heart means like you you have a, a good value system, right? right? And uh, to help okay. other people and, uh, instead of just yourself. In China, the philosophy really align very well with the development of. Uh, AI I found out this is uh, uh, what I found out in recent years so uh, I don't know whether have you heard about this a uh, philosophies uh, the uh, for to she to she he's a the guy was more of you know talk about uh, from Li Xue. Right, from, from data, you're observing data, and then goes to knowledge, and building models, uh, and then and so on and so forth.
1: In the Chinese way, though. In
3: the Chinese way, yeah. the social norm.
1: He's uh, recognized as a Confucian scholar, but actually quite different from the real Confucius uh, right. uh,
3: teaching. But this is another branch in the Confucian uh, you know, uh, philosophy. It's about the heart. Uh-huh. The heart. The heart means like uh, Wang Yangming. Okay, they talk about, uh, you know, try to construct a value system of what it means a good person. Okay, so what do you, uh, the, all the value systems that we have is about basics, like uh, a biologic system. I want to eat, and uh, I like this kind of food, I like that color, and so on, I like this face. But there are other things, like uh, you take care of other people's needs, and then also group values the whole country or, you know, uh, working as a group or a big family or... And it was driven by those needs, human needs. Because the current computer, the major major problem is that they don't need anything. They don't have a need. (laughs) So how can they drive them autonomously?
1: I remember Professor Zhu earlier told me, Professor Manford, when you have difficult issues to handle in terms of your work, you sail a boat (laughs) onto the faraway sea find an island and stay there for a while. I really wonder whether you have the same prescription for Professor Zhu to solve this problem that he beautifully described.
0: I mean, I understand that um, uh, that values, uh, d- philosophers have different words, but I mean, well, there's one, f- I was reading a paper by this guy, and he talks about urges. Urges. Oh, urges, I mean, what, um, but it doesn't matter what you call it. Your basic motivating drives you're talking about, and, right. and, and what they, uh, the they are. Extended, yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, I, y- your student was poking that, I could see that you had multiple different drives on the uh, urges uh, there on, on the screen, and was pushing one up a little bit. I wanted him to push them up way high and see what, what was gonna happen.
1: Artificial intelligence, after all, is what Professor Zhu is concentrating on at this moment. I really wonder, how do you see where Professor Zhu is, you know, in a field that's highly competitive?
0: I mean, it's not the same at all as, as having a, a, a child, but nonetheless, it's somebody that you have, you've tried to help them move to a, a certain stage in their lives, and of course, you worry intensely. It makes me very nervous, actually, that, that the field of AI is has got so much attention, and I have the feeling this is this is going to distort people's views of things. It's like when I watch
3: my daughter figure skating, I'm really nervous. It perfect. <laughs> it's, nervous. it's a lot of spot spotlight uh, over there. Right. You know, somehow right. distortions. Uh, you know uh, about uh, different views. The AI field is an arena, arena, right? Yeah. It's people. Uh, because it's become not only academic problem, because a lot of the economics uh, company, big companies, and
0: they, the politicians think that the relationship of U.S. and China has to be zero sum. This is baloney. This is ridiculous. It's the other way around. The more interchange that you have, the uh, I mean some crazy politician will say oh you stole this idea that it's really an american idea what bullshit is that i mean what's important is that is that actually you exchange ideas between the two countries and and i mean we really have everyone has the same objective but there's such a tremendous possibility of of, of politicians who don't understand at all the way science works uh, there are many scales of problems. One is, uh, you know,
3: AI has to be safe, has to have human values aligned. If you've got that, then you don't need to worry too much about, you know, the safety problem. The second uh, uh, thing is uh, for, for us to focus when you have so many noise, because the noise try to affect decision makers, right? right? Uh, in the last 10 years, indeed, it's phenomenal that the deep learning people come in they, uh, they, uh, they they blow a lot of the things away so I give you analogy in the, the 2000 when the big data first come with we, we have little skill you know we try to collect in data we say well we're serving the wave so of course first of all many kids probably enjoy it because the water comes and you enjoy serving but uh, once it stays for a little longer time, <laughs> you realize a problem, right? And then when it goes away... It washed away a lot of things. And then all destroyed. What it means uh, is education. Because nowadays, a lot of the younger the PhD students, they don't know anything else besides all these popular algorithms. And then the popular algorithm changes uh, a few years. I put a lot of emphasis uh, at Tsinghua uh, and the Peking University, particularly, uh, to start out this new curriculum to train this, the talent, cultivate them, uh, not only teach them the fundamentals of the AI, uh, you know, different fields, how them put together, give them the big picture, but also train them to be a good researcher. Means, what it means what it takes, a character of uh, being a good researcher.
1: And that's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of the team, thanks for being with us. Bye for now.